Listener Production. You are listening to episode 19 of the Howie Games Artist Series, Part B, featuring the star that is Joanna Griggs. On we go. Hey, the other urban legend around you, and I remember I was told this um, before we worked together on the tennis, and I, I've never asked you this. Um, sacked by facts? Yep. True story? On maternity leave. On maternity leave. And pregnant, four months pregnant with my second child. Wow, from seven, you get a yeah. fax. Yeah. So we had new management that had come in. I was on maternity leave. I was pregnant again, which no one knew at that stage. Um, and I remember I came home from a day out with Jesse Elder's son and I, my manager was in there and looking very ashen-faced and, and my husband at the time, Gary. And basically, I, you know, they, they were really worried about how I'd react, but a fax had come through to say that my services were no longer required by seven. And they were just in an uproar about it. it was, I had this really strange approach to it. I was looking at Jesse here at four months, anyone who's, you know, first newborn, four months they're actually like they're actually not just little squats that you're just trying to work out what on earth you're doing. Mm. <laughs> you know, like they're actually, you know, engaging and, <laughs> and, and they're just like becoming little humans and, and you actually feel like you you feel like you're a human again. Um, and so I remember thinking, oh, how great I'll have more time with Jess. Got the other baby coming along, so that'll that'll be great. But it was a huge, huge story back then because Massive I mean story. these days these days it would like it would be an even bigger story. It would end up in court. Um, these days. It would end up in court these days. And and whereas I just remember just there was almost a relief um, on one hand, and then the reality of oh bugger, I'm now unemployed. Um, and there, yeah, Alan Jones, I remember at the time on radio in Sydney was was really pushing hard to try and beat it up. Whereas I was just going, look, it, it has to happen at some point in your career. Um, but probably just to be perfectly honest, probably happy hormones, um, the second pregnancy. But in a weird way, again, like you have something that happens that, that turns your life upside down. But in actual fact, again, it was the greatest gift that could have happened because I still had bills coming in and I still had to pay. So up until that point, I'd only ever worked in sport. I'd only ever done the Australian Open, Sports World and reading sports news. From that point on, I had to take every gig under the sun that came in and and go so far out of my comfort zone. So I was hosting political satirical shows. I was hosting, you know, standing up in front of a packed thing at Melbourne Comedy Festival doing Good News Week specials and, you know, anything that came in. I worked for Seven, I worked for Fox, I worked for Foxtel, um, I worked for Nine, I worked for Ten, I worked for the ABC nonstop. So literally you were just a gun for hire and you did anything and everything. So in a weird way, that probably opened up people's eyes to the fact that you could do more than just sport and that you could think on your feet and you could, you know, have a joke at your own expense and, and you could do all these different things. And and so as a result of that, um, I had one of the things I had done was good, good – what was it called? Um, uh, Stan Zamanik. Oh, God, I've got mine. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and, Beauty the, and Beast. the Beast. And oh, what was that on? What channel was that, that on? That was on Foxhill. Right. And and it, I, he and I had just almost come to blows. Like we clashed, which I didn't realise then. It was just his persona that he put on. Yes. Yeah, he create. He basically had found a gap in the market, gone out to country radio, created this persona, come back and just killed it. Mm. Nothing like his on-air persona away from the microphone and away from television. It's a big show. It was, it was huge back then. But the funny thing is is I swore, absolutely swore, and I'm pretty stubborn and I've always been stubborn and I'm pretty set in my ways that I would never, ever, ever do that show again. And Foxtel had come back and they were saying it was fantastic and all the, and I was like, nah, uh, uh. And then my personal circumstances changed very, very quickly uh, from from that 
um, thing. And, and so basically I, I lost my car and still had all the bills coming in. I My marriage broke down and the bank basically told me they were going to take the house in a week. And you've got two kids. And I've got two kids at this stage who are six months and 18 months. And so um, we we just, we were in, we were in a spot. And uh, I always remember Brian Walsh from Fox Hill was, was really adamant. He just kept saying, you'll change your mind, you'll change your mind, you'll change your mind. So my manager, um, who I've been with, I think since the second year I started in TV. Who's that? Sue Muggleton. She, um, she rang him and she said, hey, you know, you know that one year deal that you're offering Joe? And he's like, he thought it was great. He's like, oh, I knew you'd come back. And she's like, yeah, she still, still doesn't really want to do it, but she's, she's prepared to. But, but we need, we need more than that because she's going to lose a house and the banks need more surety than a one year contract. Um, so she will sign for two years at what you're offering and you know it's a bargain rate, but we need the we need that piece of paper and we need it by five o'clock this afternoon. And he to did that. To sort the house. Yeah, he did that. So it meant I could, I put the house on the market that weekend to rent it out. I got renters in, I moved back home. Um, so you and, had some humble pie. Yeah, but it was, it was you, you'd do anything. Like you've got two little, little you know, yeah. babes that you're looking after. Um, and then I also discovered the joy that Stan Zmanik wasn't that horrible person, that <laughs> he was lovely. And all the women that I worked with on that show, we, we, I mean, that was such a bizarre thing when you think back to it mm. now, but it was actually such a great fun show to work on. And and then I was doing all the other special events for Foxtel um, and Foxtel basically, you know, we, when the 100th person signed up for Foxtel, we'd do a live event. <laughs> when the 500th person signed yeah, up, we'd travel around the country and do a live event. Yeah. You know, like it was, it was such a strange time. So Foxtel still wanted me to do all the other things as long as I was Foxtel's own Joanna Griggs. And so I had probably the first sort of open contract between pay TV and, and commercial networks that were quite happy to do it. And then uh, to, uh, my last year of that Foxhill contract, Channel 7 came to them and said to them, like it was in the first year, they said, we want Joe to do the Sydney Olympics in 2000. So this is Channel 7 that is sacked by fax? Yeah, but different management. So there were still some of the people that I'd worked with years previously, but all the management of 7 had changed. And um, Andy Kay was one of the people that was really um, the driving force behind behind getting Former me back. Former boss of both of us. Yeah, and so AK um, got me in to do, you know, I was doing absolutely anything and everything as Foxwell's own and I did a, a rugby function um, and it was a debate and it was a, a very funny debate and I, I knew I had done well with that and so then next second seven rang Foxwell and said, we want Joe for the Sydney Olympics, we'd like her to do the breakfast show, which was the greatest gig in the history of the world, mm. hosting breakfast at the Sydney Olympic Games in your home city in the most extraordinary location because they'd had some exec who'd, um, you know, had to leave the yeah. network in disgrace. So you were literally looking at the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. And so I was allowed to be released from that for that, that three weeks. And basically at the end of that three weeks, it just started a bidding war till the end of the year between the networks. And so it was between Foxhill, uh, Nine and Seven were the three ones that I just went to constantly with meetings and, and Seven um, took me back. So. How did you feel when you signed that contract after what you've described with Seven on a much inflated wage as someone that had been on their <laughs> knees and then was demanding and getting what they're after. Well, they were they were pretty extraordinary. They they were offering like for what to me felt like the world. It really it felt like it felt like everything that I had done for all those years in between um it was like the payoff for that. But I couldn't help myself like in negotiations. But <laughs> they would just they were so transparent and they'd be like, because it wasn't them who'd ax no. me. So they kept saying, we're so sorry and we want to make it up to you. And then you know, I'd just look at it and I'd say, oh, but 
It's just when I think about the pain of that moment. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of zeros would help with the pain. (laughs) We had a field day with them, but to be honest, it it was great. They they wanted sport, but they also wanted more than sport, and that's how I started off doing um, Auction Squad. That's where the Auction Squad team comes in. We have lots of fabulous tips and ideas to help increase the value of your property. And then House Calls to the Rescue. Hello, I'm Joanna Griggs and welcome to our new show, House Calls to the Rescue, the show that answers your cries for help and sends in a team of experts to save you from your own... Then Better Homes came along. Well, we've got that and a whole lot more coming your way on Better Homes and Gardens. You know, basically it was tying in everything that I love doing away from sport. And so they they get their prime time out of it. They still get me for all the Olympics and Paralympics and um, Com Games and, and I love it. You get to As you say, I literally get the best of both worlds. And this is where we first meet because I'd worked as the assistant director on the volleyball for the host feed at the Sydney <laughs> Olympics um, and then ended up at Channel 7 as a assistant producer on Sports World under Neil Kearney. Mm-hmm our great friend and Maddie Weiss, who I still work with now, um, the dog. Um, and you were the star of the show. You all of a sudden had come back, as you said, you'd reported on Sports World. You were hosting Sports World. It was in Melbourne. It was with a variety of footballers, whether it was Dermot Brereton, whether it was Paul Salmon. Yep. Uh, the long jumper, David Colbert, was an assistant producer. And we had Sandy Roberts as a co-host Sandy well. Maddie Roberts, White. Maddie White as well. Yep. It was... It, it was it was the first time I'd met you and I learnt so much. By <laughs> Well, I did because I'd sit in the control room at various times as the line producer after a year or two and for people that's – I'd be telling Joe that, you know, what's coming up next or who the next interview is or we've got to get to an ad break um, and watched you do what you do. And the thing that I learnt from you, it's funny when you said – all the mistakes you made early, but you'd laugh and people would feel comfortable. I would see these people come on set and it was Stuart McGill to talk about the Ashes. It was Michelle Timms to talk about basketball. We had all these people that would come in and within 30 seconds, whether it was in the green room beforehand, remember Adam Goods came in one day and you gave him a big hug and he was a young man and I could just see how these people relaxed mm. and I was like, there is the great skill of what Joe does. <laughs> that That's the skill of television is to making your guest relax. And I learned that from you as a young man watching you in sports world. Wow. Um, That and research. Yeah. And research. And knowing your stuff. And it was Bruce McAvaney who took me aside early on and he said, look, people are always going to say things about you. They're going to, they might hate how you sound, how you walk, how you, how you look. Um, But the one thing that they can't argue with is if you know your stuff. Mm. And so I take that side of things. It's why I love the Olympics and Paras and Com Games and why I love Sports World because you had to do you had to know your stuff. You had to know your you had to do your research. You've got to know the stats on the people. You've got to know the sports side of it, but then you've also got to treat them as a human. I, I can remember I can remember being in a meeting with you. Because you used to come down on the Sunday morning. No, I'd come down Saturday. Oh, Saturday night. Yeah, it was yeah. Saturday. So it would have been a late Saturday yeah. and it was Dermot and Merv Hughes for whatever reason. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to run you through the show with Dave Colbert and there's Dermot and Merv, great men, but like six-year-olds. <laughs> Clowns. And there's like a National Geographic docker and we're on the – I think we're talking about John the Bookie and what had happened in <laughs> India with Junior yeah. and, and the King Warney. And right into this meeting – and you're paying attention, you're writing notes. And then Merz looked at Derm and said, so how do you reckon snakes have sex, Dermot? <laughs> and I'm like, 
and you've looked at me and I've looked at you. And I was like, how, how come this woman work with these lunatics? That, that's the type of stuff you had to deal with. <laughs> Although I always remember Neil Kearney saying to me, because my boys were still young then, yeah, and, Neil, yeah. and saying to Neil, I'm really worried about coming away every weekend. He goes, mate, you're going to love this. He goes, one, you'll use that brain of yours, which you need to do. I know, yeah. I know what you're like. Two, he said, this will be the greatest time of your life. He said, don't worry, you're still going to feel like you're working with kids. <laughs> and he was and you're right. worse. You're worse. You're worse. So I've got two things to uh, two things to bring up with you. Th- this one, I don't think you'll have any relax. You definitely not this one. I don't think you'll uh, recollect the second one. I was trying to get into reporting. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't working out for me. And they said, no, you're a producer. And the great Matty Weiss at this stage had taken over EP and he said, go and shoot a story, see what you come up with. And Kelly Slater was coming back <laughs> to try and qualify for Bells. He yeah. had a few years out. And we went down there and spent the day with Kelly with the great Les, Tulec- Les Tulecki, the cameraman, and shot it. And I interviewed him and I was that nervous. And it took me a week and a half to put the story together. And you were the one that threw to it, my first ever story on TV. And I, can, I can't remember exactly what you said, but off the back of it, you said something along the And I was then line producing the show. <laughs> you, you've come off the back of it and said, you know, great insight um, with Kelly Slater by one of our up-and-coming star young reporters, Mark Howard, and it meant the world to me. Um, oh, yeah. Look at you. Yeah, look because you. it meant the world to me yeah. because I'd been trying to go down that path and hadn't been having any success. I didn't expect to get emotional about it, Grizzy. <laughs> um and it set me on your way, and that's you as a person. You were always, you were the star of the network, mm. but you were the most down-to-earth member of the crew, and you knew everybody's name, and you wanted to make everyone feel good, and I learned a lot from you yeah. due to that. Well, I learned that from Bruce. Right. So I, I, the being kind to another person can go a long way, mm. and we've all been that person who wants to break through and, yeah. and who, who wants to be heard and wants to be seen. And sometimes it is all they need to hear to know that it's possible. It's a tiny thing. It's possible. It's the same as you treat, like I've seen so many people come and go in the years that I've been there and and I've seen some really confident, cocky people come in and I always look at them and I watch them and I watch how they are with people. I watch how they are when there's bosses around and I watch how they are when the bosses aren't around. And there's there's some people that, that... you know, are still successful who aren't really great at looking after those, not at their level or above, mm. but the people below. Yes. And even even the ones I look at now, there's still a couple of them. I watch them and I think, oh, you don't understand. The wheels, the wheels are turning. They might be moving slowly, but they're turning. You will get found out. Yes. Because if you don't, like, that's, I think that's, that's probably one of the biggest things that I learned is that... And I guess it's because, you know, when you get axed and you have to go back and you've got to eat humble pie and you've got to take every job along the way, you work out every single person has a job to do. And actually every single person that's in those roles, if they were really horrible and really wanted to, they could probably screw you over a hundred times over. Completely. Right? It's out of the goodness of their hearts that they don't do it. But if you don't treat them well, whether it's on the way up or whether it's on the way down, they will never, ever forget that. They will never forget that. So... Yeah, one of the things Bruce taught me was 
learn everybody's name and the crew, learn what they do, respect them, let them know you appreciate them, mm. um, you know, be interested in them, interested in them, not just what they're doing at work, but ask them about their lives and their families' lives because one of the great things in media that they do these days is they try to dehumanise all of that. They don't, they don't want to know that. They don't want you to be involved with people because then, then you get emotionally connected mm. to them. Um, I'm not from that era. I'm from the era where one... I believe that there is enough room for everyone and and so I'm forever mentoring young up-and-coming people and giving them any opportunity I can. Like the last Com Games, I was like, we've just had a couple of athletes who've who've finished their careers, they're desperate to get into media, have them on my shift. And, yeah, I offered that like three times and it never happened. And I said to them afterwards, why didn't you do that? They said, oh, yeah, we just weren't sure, you know, whether everyone else would be comfortable with that. I said, but it doesn't matter. No. Like, like I, they, could have, they could have sat in my change room for all I cared. Like, got, got a feel for you it. You know, got a feel for it. Started to understand, started to see all the roles, how many people it takes for that person to be allowed to shine on camera. Like, you're one of 60, you know, yeah. and every single one of those 60 people pretty much has your career in their hands if they, if they wanted to. Absolutely, they do. If they wanted to be horrible, they could ruin it. So just treat them with respect. And then, then people, like, I... I often don't know, I actually have lots of discussions with the, the big bosses at Seven who say to me, how do you know this? Or how do you, how do you, have you found this out before we've been, you know, ready to announce it? Or how, who's, who's hmm. giving you this bit of information? It's like, well, if you treat people with respect over 30 years, you'd be amazed what they would do for you and what they would do. Because you also, they also know you're not going to abuse that power. You're not going to put them in it. You're not going to do anything, but you just, people will bend over backwards to repay you in kindness if you treat them well. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. Um, and that's why this lady is a star because <laughs> even if she does make a mistake, the crew will back her up because mm-hmm. they love her wholeheartedly. Um, an example of that where it could have really gone wrong for me and particularly you, not to our, uh, it wasn't our fault. You won't recall this. <laughs> so I had the pleasure of producing Joe on the Australian Open Tennis for two years. I was thinking about this yesterday. So we'd do the evening shift. Yeah. What time would that start? It was. This is hilarious now because I look at it now. Like, you're lucky if you do four hours now yeah. on a stint. We would start at six, six. and we would finish at Two a.m., three a.m., four a.m., five a.m. Whoever won the first set <laughs> in that last game, a. it didn't matter if Leighton lost the first set. You were going for the other person because you just needed a three-setter because it would go so late. Yeah, but also it wasn't only that, and it's still, yeah, you know, they still do the same thing to this day. I think they've got a bit more flexibility, but it's also whatever content they'd sold for the entire day. Now, as we know, tennis yeah. matches don't pan <sighs> out the way that somebody sits there in a sales team and says it will pan out. So we would sometimes finish with the last live match at yeah. one a.m. and still be going at four. And <laughs> <Yeah, it>, we'd <laughs> be throwing to tape pieces. I'd be saying, "Okay, Griggsy, now we're going to number fifty-two versus number 50. It'd be two in the morning. So I can recall, Joe, I don't think you'll remember this. In fact, I'm sure you won't remember this. We used to, because you were so professional, we used to rehearse the first segment where you'd be coming on. I know exactly on. what you're going to say. Okay. I reckon I know exactly. Are you talking about when somebody flicked the control room? Yes. On our rehearsal? Yes. And normally I would be goofing off because I yes. would goof off right to the last second yes. and just carry on like a pork chop. And all I remember, that all we did that particular night was – Without us knowing it, this had happened. So we thought we were rehearsing. Someone in <laughs> Queensland flicked the switch <laughs> yeah. to put Griggsy. I remember walking past the camera about three or four times and coming. That was probably the first time I'd been on TV, to be fair. <laughs> you could have been saying anything. And anyone who knows me knows I would normally be saying anything. Filthy mouth, <laughs> Johanna Griggs. <laughs> <laughs> 
filthy. Sailor. <laughs> Literally that particular night, all we did was I that. sat down and I was writing some notes and I think it was just because we were at that you know, hump day where we were all exhausted and I remember I just didn't like the way I'd written something and I just screwed it up and I threw it into a, a bin <laughs> and I got it, got it in, which I'm so unco, like that also was a rarity, and I just went... Yes. <laughs> and that was it. Didn't even swear when I got it in. <laughs> so that, that went to air. But also so did the four minutes yes. of us just sitting in silence. Six minutes. Six minutes of me walking past set. Grinzy, <laughs> we're going to be speaking to whoever, whoever. So thank heavens the internet wasn't there then because that's the type of yeah. thing now. Mm. And you're talking about looking after people. It, that, that would be put up on YouTube now and it would be classic television. The, the fact you didn't swear is one of the great miracles in the history <laughs> of, the of mankind. <laughs> the other thing I remember, and I don't remember what happened, Griggsy, and it's the first time I really saw the pressure that can come to bear on a TV star, yeah. which is what you are and what you were at the time. And I don't remember what happened. Something had happened at the tennis. You were the prime time. It was you. You, you were the pin-up poster of the coverage. And something happened and there was a negative response to it. And I just remember all these people trying to help and protect you, but probably not in the right was it way. The Jim, was it the Jim Courier thing? I don't remember. I think that was – the only thing I can think of that was, that was really big with that was um, – because remember when Jim, Jim came out – and I had stirred him up, but it was because he he'd made a makeup artist cry. That's right. Yeah. He'd made a makeup artist cry on his very think, first day in studio. Can we talk about this one? Or I, I I don't care. Yeah, I'm, okay. Oh God, I have a thing. Th- this is what it was. Yeah. This is what it was. And I so he he'd made somebody cry, and then and it was just because he like like a lot of you know certainly every former world number one that I've ever interviewed yeah. in tennis outside of possibly Pat Rafter, um, and Leighton Hewitt, you know, very. You know, particularly the the Americans. Yeah, they're a big deal, and they mm. know they're a big deal, and they are treated like a big deal on the tour. So when- oh, I remember McEnroe. One of my jobs was to take a six pack of Heinekens into the commentary box, and yeah. they had to be cold for yep. him to drink during the match. He, he would literally turn up, like maybe twenty seconds into your intro as you're starting the night, and he'd just turn up and he looked like he'd slept in his suit, and he'd just rock up, put a mic on, off he goes. Which, which was all about trying to. It's all about trying to un, you know, rattle, basically yes. unnerve and rattle the person that he's with. Which yes, I'd, I'd done a function with him, so I knew what he was like. So oh, I, I was remember, like, whatever. I just remember the Heineken's had to be a certain temperature. <laughs> anyway, back to Jim. Well, so Jim, do you remember? I remember the first day he made someone cry in, and back then we used to have a makeup studio in the actual studio. They were quite big spaces. And uh, and then he was so used to an audience because this poor makeup artist got so nervous and more and more nervous and touched his hair and he nutted out about them touching his hair and, and so it just escalated, escalated. But he was so used to having an audience and, and everyone's so used to performing like that for him that he stood up and he just looked at everyone and he put his hands in the air and he went, da-da, and everyone applauded him. Hmm. And I just remember looking at him thinking, you are the greatest tosser I have mm. ever seen in my mm. life. Mm. How dare you make that lady cry? Mm. And so he looked at, and he kind of looked at me and he said, why aren't you applauding? And I said, was I actually think you're a bit of a tosser. He said, how dare you speak to me like that? Mm. I am a former world number one. I said, I know, congratulations on your two French Opens and your two Australian Opens. Amazing. Welcome to the team. I think you, you know, you're acquired up in the you know, bird's eye view with Bruce. And so he headed out and we all kind of went, oh, God. But we kind of knew he'd settle down. And he's he's totally, he's a different person to what he was in that very first year. Yeah. And I always remember he, he went up with Bruce and and I, as I threw, I just said to the, was um, Warren Sim, the producer, I said, can I key on to Bruce without without him hearing me? And he checked, he said, no. And I said, well, 
Bruce being Bruce is great. You can throw anything at him and he'll go with it. And so I threw up, I threw up to him. And back then, Garnier used to have a beauty bar at the oh, tennis. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I just said, um, you know, uh, Bruce McAvaney and, and with him a man we're very excited to welcome to the team and a man who's clearly dropped by the Garnier beauty bar on the way up because anyone who's looked after his hair, you know, to look that good mm. has to be somebody who, who's, you know, I can't remember if it was somebody who's, who's vain or whatever. Um, but welcome aboard, Jim Courier. And so I threw to him and Bruce being Bruce just looked at his hair and went, oh, Jim, I actually really do like your hair today. Good <laughs> <laughs> you, Macca. <laughs> Which was so cute and so Bruce. And so we're all just killing ourselves laughing in the studio. But he just glared down the camera. So he spent the whole the whole fortnight he pretty much spent trying to one-up me. And I just, every time he'd do it, I'd just say to him, Jim, this is how it works. At the end of the day, I'm the host, you're the guest. doesn't matter what you say, I'm always going to have the last word. Yeah. It'll be me turning to the camera. So whatever you say, I will always be able to top it. So just calm down. And so I think he thought it was some kind of, I think he thought it was some kind of challenge. And I remember that was the promos for Better Homes were starting. So it was yeah. 2005. That's and it, that's it. That was it. And the promo came up and and he he just continuing on with what had happened that whole sort of week and a half leading up to it went, oh, who's the blonde bimbo in the middle? And John Alexander, who was co-hosting with him, hilariously went into um, a CV of me, but like I think from my under 16 years, started talking about, you know. Back to the swimming. Softball, swimming, right. netball, basketball. <laughs> so he's just like reeling off tennis. He's reeling <laughs> off all these different things, which I thought was hilarious. And, and all I knew is my phone just blew up. I hadn't seen it, hadn't heard it, but I, my phone blew up. That's what it will have been and the, and yeah. the people were around you and because around, you and were And they were so stressed out. That's and right, I always remember them right. going in and saying, we, we can't sack him. We, we've paid a fortune for him. And I'm like, you don't have to sack him. I said, all, all we can do is next time he's in studio, don't give him a heads up, we'll just play it. And they'll just turn to him and I'll put him in his place. Oh, no problem this putting someone it. in their this place. This is it. No problem doing that. And so literally when he came in, we got to the end of it and all I just said to him was, you know, you wouldn't do that to any of the male hosts. So if you could just, when you're talking to me, how about you just keep it to tennis? Um, you're really out of your depth and and I'd appreciate that. Just on air? On air. So that all went to air and then and then after that, he then, just, he then tried to kiss me at the end of the segment. So then he decided to make it like it was a... An attraction thing that he was so attracted, which is all Jim. it was all rubbish, right? It was all bollocks. Right. But all I remember is getting to the final after the men's final. Of course, we'd have that feel, that excruciating feel yeah. that you always have. That yeah, can, yeah, yeah. if it's Rafa, it could go for like five years because yeah. he has three toilet stops. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> but yeah. you're feeling, 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 and it's all live, and you haven't got any more commercials to go to, and so you're feeling, feeling. And and Jim was just up there, and he he was still playing along that it was this attraction thing, and that's what he that's what he he couldn't. Do. But he did say to me afterwards, he said, "Man, I really misjudged that." <laughs> he said, "I've just been ticked off by people all week." He says, Good. "They're very protective of you here, aren't they?" Yeah, well, <laughs> and that, that's that's what I that's what it came back to. What I was saying with you. So those big events, Australian Open, like the, the the Olympics. Commonwealth Games you've just done, and you're you're always the person to watch. You and Macca are the the stars of the show, and that's why Seven love you both so much. What do you what do you think the key is to getting through the Olympics, which is not two weeks? Everyone thinks it's two weeks, but it's longer than two weeks. You get to two weeks, and there's still days to go. What's the key to presenting a successful Olympic broadcast? Let it be about the athletes, right? Tell their stories in a positive way. Like we, I've always we've always made a point on camera. I, we try to get as many results away because Mar and Pa Kettle, yes, they might like the swimming, but they also like seeing how, you know, their son or daughter is done in the shooting or whatever the event might be that doesn't get the exposure that the other sports do. Try and get as much as you can away and be positive about the athletes and and don't ask a four-minute question. 
ask a 30-second question to let them answer. Don't tell them their story. Let mm. them tell you. You see a lot of people when they start out, that's a mistake they make. It's like they're so keen to let everyone know how much they know. That's not your job. If you know your work, you know it. You don't need to, to, to basically remind everyone at home that you know everything. When the time comes we have to pull that out, of course you'll be able to pull it out. But your job is to just basically be the conduit to let the athlete shine and let them tell their stories. And these days social media comes into play. Yep. So when you're hosting your first Olympics in Salt Lake, if you get something wrong, you know, you'd be disappointed with yourself but you move on pretty quickly. How do you deal with the feedback that you get immediately from the world? To be honest, if it was, if I know it's going to be a diabolical, just don't look. It's right. the, literally the advice that I give to, to everyone. I stopped Twitter during the vaccination debates because I was like, I don't feel like I have to personally, yeah. um, you know, argue with every person who who is an anti-vaxxer or has personal beliefs that, that don't align with mine. Um, and Twitter is pretty vile. Uh, Instagram, you occasionally get something a bit vile on it, but most of the time Instagram, which which is more relative to all the other stuff that I do because it's such visual shows. Um, but during those big events, one, because the hours you're generally doing, like mm. even com games, everyone's like, oh, you had the cruisy little afternoon gig. Well, I was in there at midnight, mm. starting at one, going like the clappers till 7.30, recording the links. Then we would basically put the show together, pump it out home between 12.45 to 1.45 to basically press rewind and repeat and go again. More of Joe in a tick. Another TV-type featured on the Artist Series in episode 13. Had quite an impact on people, this one. Grant Denyer, racing cars to crazy TV stunts, some tough times and a frightening, frightening accident. The monster truck thing was like, um, oh, yeah, cool, here's a new discipline. Um, you know, I, I like cars at high speed. What, you can jump over seven cars? Um, give me a crack at that. So I was doing a little bit of that, just turning up to the odd show here and there and just having a squirt and loving it. Um, and then I did a, a media day uh, for an event that was in Wollongong down at uh, Dapto. And uh, I jumped over several cars and um, the suspension broke. So when I when I landed, um, it just was rock solid. Um, and that all that inertia, all that, you know, a five-ton five car flying through the air, coming down, landing, it's going to land pretty hard. So that just all that shot up through my spine and shattered my L1 into 11 pieces. The pain and the recovery and the medication required to get through it, can you look back on it and see how it all developed and what happened? Oh, it was a shit fight. Um, yeah, it, the pain instantly, like when, as soon as it landed, you know, I – I've looked at a lot of like old World War One and Two documentaries where you see blokes say, "Well, I just uh, I popped out of the trenches and started running. I didn't even realise I had no arm." Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you hear them tell those stories, I didn't realise you know I'd been shot or I'd lost a leg yes. or I. So I formed an opinion that the body must look after you when in moments of trauma your your body goes, you know what, you're in a bit of a bad way here, I'll take care of it, you won't feel a thing. So I've always had that in my back of my mind, which is maybe why I'm a bit more fearless than I should be. But the moment I landed in the monster truck and that vertebra just obliterated, oh, the first thing I thought was, it's not true, it's not true, <laughs> it really does hurt. And I knew that the way that the pain had gone up – in the matter of seconds, if I didn't get out of there, you know, I was in a, I was in a hell of a lot of trouble. That is Grant Denyer. Go back to episode 13 of the Artist Series in October 2022 and you'll find it. 
let's get back to Griggsy. When we started this, we were talking about the first female to solo host an Olympics. So you've been a trailblazer in a lot of ways. How are we tracking from a female perspective about inclusion on TV and being involved and hosting and reporting and being the main, pe- main people on sports broadcasts? Oh, I think it's changed enormously. I think I think certainly now you can turn on pretty much any sport and you can see incredible women who have a fantastic skill set and and I think that whole argument about, well, you know, you never played this, so how would you know about it? That goes out the wayside because there's some of the greatest broadcasters who are male are in exactly the same situation. Um, it still fascinates me with some of those really key sports at that, you know, I don't think so much the NRL and maybe it's changing a little bit in the AFL as well where um, it used to just be that the women were, you know, when I was, I was actually offered the AFL when I came back to Seven, but it was only ever to do basically injury updates and, yep. and weather checks. And I was yep. like, no, I, I, I can host, I'm going to host. Um, and so that's changed. It has changed. They, I think the person who, if they've got the skill set and they're the best person for the job, great, put them in it. So it's, it has come a long way. Um, that said, you've still got some dinosaurs in those positions of power. Like I, I'm regularly, you know, call them out for stuff that I think is is not necessarily 100% right yet um, and that might be about behaviour or like I won't I won't walk past bad behaviour. Um, but they kind of know that with me so I don't think any of it surprises them. They, you know, I walked away from house rules because I couldn't stand the way reality contestants were treated. Right. Um, and, you know, I had a meeting every single year for seven years outlining it and, and you know, with with comments from contestants so that they, they actually knew it wasn't me and not just my observations but but how it was impacting their life. So I regularly probably cross the line with that sort of stuff but because I've never been any different, I, I think I think they understand it and as long as you don't abuse that, um, I think I actually think it's part of my responsibility of being someone who's a bit older or of, of you know, having all that experience under the belt. What's the point of having it if you if you can't keep learning from it? And and not just me, but somebody who's starting out, like teaching them teaching them the right way to do something as opposed to a preconceived idea that they might have that comes with being a producer or being mm. that. You don't have to be you don't have to be horrible to people to get the best out of them. In my experience, being nice to people is way more effective to get the very best, whether it's the best performance, whether it's the best interview, whether it's the best, you know, working environment. And if I look at highlights of everything I've ever done, it's actually not about necessarily the event or those amazing moments where you're standing. I mean, they're, they're incredible. You can have a packed stadium behind you. You can be in those surreal moments that are they are once in a lifetime, things in that moment. That's not what you remember. You remember the people around it. You remember the people you work with. You remember the people, the the giggles that you had in, mm. you know, all hours of the days and night because you when you're working on those events, you are up at crazy hours. Wow. That's what you actually remember. But it only, it only takes one or two people to be... To, to not have that mindset where it can all go a bit pear-shaped. And they're the people I just call out. Who is the most impressive athlete you've ever dealt with? Ooh, that's hard. Probably Roger Federer, in all honesty. Um, just so so cool, so polite to whether it be media or just to punters. Um, and even, I don't even remember the, that year where, it was after the year after Hit for Haiti, which he all had yeah. organised, and then they had all of the um, yeah, floods and bushfires, and yep. uh, we had another charity day. And I always remember Roger was really annoyed about that at that stage because he didn't want that Sunday between what was then, um, you know, effectively the New South Wales Open and the Adelaide Men's Tournament on the Sydney Open, um, and the Australian Open to become a charity day. It was just that these two major 
yeah, series of events that happened. And I remember he decided he wasn't going to do it. He had so much sway with all the players that that all of them just pulled out of it. And it was actually Novak Djokovic who who managed to rally a hmm. whole bunch of others and he went back to doing all his impersonations, which he oh, hated yeah, doing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Hated doing. And he put towels over the spider cam and he absolutely clowned around. And then as it got closer, Roger was like, oh, I've had a bit of FOMO. So to his credit, he came back and he said, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. Hmm. Um, I want to do it. I'll do it differently to, to, to Novak. But I think it was he and Sam Stozer and Leighton That's Hewitt. It, yeah. um, and I think it might have even been Serena or one of them. It was another big name. Oh, no, Kim might have been Kim Clijsters. And they did an exhibition where they were mic'd up, but but they didn't goof off. They played a bit more serious tennis. Um, and he he actually came and, you know, he spoke to me and he said, I, I misjudged this and I, I just was having a moment being selfish and I'm sorry. Just a class act, right? He's such a star. So probably the most professional out of any that you had to deal with. Because, like, those athletes, they just – that tennis circuit, and it was probably the same as cricket. When Anything, even football in a football season must feel overwhelming where – Week in, week out, you ask the same questions. Yep. You've got that, you yeah, know, that media cycle gets shorter and they want it to be more outraged. It must be exhausting. And so the ones that can be classy through that for the number of years that Roger has, hats off. Well, here's a different question for you. Talking about questions, you now get a question. Oh, okay. From my son. Oh. <laughs> the big penguin. The big penguin. Who I've explained to him what you do. And he seemed to think that was pretty cool. and walk diagonally at the same time. Yes, that's yep, right. But that's both it. do it very well. So <laughs> here you go. Hey, Grigsy, Big Penguin here. First off, I think your job is really cool. And I kind of want to do that when I'm older. Anyway, I hear that you really like travelling, which is cool because I really like travelling as well. And my dad told me you just got back from Alaska. I want to go there one day. Anyway, my favourite place that I've ever been is Costa Rica. There's this little town called Puyguerinis. But that doesn't really matter. What I want to know is where's your favourite place to go and when do you want to go back to it? It's, it's a really lengthy, it's a 35 seconder <laughs> that, he's, um, that he's rolled out there, the young man. He started ticking off circuit towns in Costa Rica. So he's, he's quite well travelled for a 10-year-old. But I, I was telling him, like, why is she in Alaska? And I was saying, well, that's what her job does. She goes all around the world. Like, she gets paid to go all around. I said, that's what she gets paid to do. Hence the question. <laughs> Where would I want to go back to? Look, to be honest, it's probably more simple than actually going to travel anywhere. It's it's our farm in the Hunter Valley. And, and I think because our lives are so active and so busy, and I'm always away, but I'm never away. You know, I'm away with my work family, yes. but not with my husband or not with my family. Um, that's my That's my sanity. That's my space where everything's green, where I've got my bees, where I've got my cows, I've got my dogs. Um, you know, it's where everyone congregates. Mm. We can have a lot of people stay. We can feed a lot of people. I love cooking. I love entertaining. And so probably because I do so much travel, it's actually that. So I would say Laguna, New South Wales. That's what I tell him. He said, where should we go next out? I said, oh, I just wouldn't mind a couple of days at home, mate. <laughs> um, final question for you. We are, I always say this, but we are, and I, I really mean it. We're very lucky that a lot of kids listen to this show, Grigsy, with their parents often on the way to training or playing their musical instrument or whatever it may be that fills their bucket up, as the kids say these days, fill the cup up. For those young minds that are listening that want to achieve some success, that you've achieved success in all sorts of fields, what advice would you give? My advice would be accept you will make mistakes and mistakes are a great way to learn. 
Um, or I always say it's good to make it once. Try not to make the same mistake twice because if you learn from it, you shouldn't make the same mistake twice. Uh, be kind to the people around you because the people along the way um, are going to be there on the way up as well as the way down. I would say learn to leave the criticisms behind. So you yeah. learn, learn to take all the good things that are there and leave the bad things behind. Um, and these these are actually funny enough all things I think I actually learned through sport. Work hard. Um, don't complain unless it's it's there's something really worth complaining about. Um, and how you start, how you finish. So all those boundaries and and the way that you choose to live your life, actually, uh, if you start that way and you don't veer from those things, every night you put your head in your pillow and you'll go to sleep. And and that can go through a whole career. And I, I would say I'm I'm still doing that 30 years on and still can't believe I'm working, but yeah, it's doing that 30 years on next March and can honestly say there's nothing that I regret, the good, the bad and everything else in between, because it's all part of what makes you who you are. You are a star. I'm glad I turned up on time this time. <laughs> I didn't leave you hanging, but I hope you understood and I hope people listening understood that, that you've taught me a couple of really valuable lessons and that the main one being how to treat people both on air and off air. So it's been a thrill to have you. you on the Howie Games Artist Series. May you have many more shows come your way and many more grandchildren come your way as well. Thank you. And I'll even forgive you for stealing my Marion Jones story. Well, you need to tell the <laughs> Marion Jones story then. You said that you'd interviewed Marion Jones and that Marion Jones... With Laz. Yeah, but... I I interviewed yes. her. <laughs> you well, told the story that him. you interviewed her and how the ta- how basically something went wrong with the recording. Well, they stuffed it up. Well, technically we didn't point fingers at actually who stuffed it up. It was Les. <laughs> but the red button wasn't rolling. No. And then she turned a little bit narky at us and gave us a bit of a challenge as to how we continue the interview. So I'm listening to you as I always listen to your oh, podcast. Sure you and, of course, we went through and I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar, Howie. Too many interviews. Too many many interviews over the years. So let's just, the the reason the the button's not running is because Laz the cameraman didn't hit record. So whether it was you or me, it's a good point. There was no interview with Marion Jones, was there? True. True. We got the interview in the end, but we weren't allowed to ask any of the same questions again. (laughs) We weren't allowed to say anything similar to what, and at any point she could choose to to basically not do the interview, which was hilarious because to get that interview, she'd asked me to go and do two events with her. I'd hosted two events. She hadn't spoken a word to me outside of when we were on stage. Come on, Marion. Not one word. She'd literally ripped off everything I'd said about Michelle Timms at the second event and then repeated it on stage (laughs) verbatim. So I kind of had this respect for her that she could do it. And then she made me sit at basically in, in with a room divider for an hour where she didn't speak to me even though we just had a divider between us. And then we finally got that interview and then I heard you say that you did it. And oh, I was I like, what? It's 20 years ago. I've either ripped it off or mistaken, but either way... Laz stuffed it up. <laughs> Laz, I love you. I do too, And buddy. Sue. Uh, and Chop Sue. Griggsy, thanks for joining me on the Howie Games Artist Series. So welcome. Thank you. Joe Griggs, tough as nails, but also as caring as they come. Thanks to Joe for her passion and helping set me on a path. I hope you took something from the great woman as well. Until next Tuesday, with Henry Alonga, peace and love.